Welcome to the Supervisory Development Course podcast from the University of Minnesota. This episode is adapted from a webinar that aired on April 11, 2019. The podcast discusses components of compensation strategy, constraints and barriers around pay, and common misconceptions surrounding rewards and compensation. Please note that the content of the podcast covers pay for non-contract employees, since labor unions have contracts which govern their pay. For more information and resources on rewards and compensation, visit humanresources.umn.edu, and for more information on supervisory development, visit supervising.umn.edu. Hi, everyone. Welcome. We'll go ahead and get started by introducing our presenters. I'm Emily Tichich. I'll be facilitating this session today. For the second half of today's webinar, I'll be joined by three of my colleagues from the Office of Human Resources to get some important perspectives on common questions in rewards and compensation at the U. With me here are Brandon Sullivan, Senior Director of Leadership and Talent Development, Mary Roman Cool, Director of Compensation, and Ken Horstman, Senior Director of Total Compensation. So again, welcome everyone. Thank you for attending our webinar today on Rethinking Rewards and Compensation on this beautiful spring-like day. At the be just kidding, it's horrible. So especially thank you for attending. At the beginning of this webinar, we've asked you, what kind of recognition do you personally find most meaningful? If you haven't had a chance to reply to this in the chat, you can go ahead and do that now. That would be great. While we wait for your responses, I want to share some research from the Center for Creative Leadership, which indicates that high potential employees are more likely to be motivated by things like support for advancement, greater authority, and feedback and coaching. When they were asked, when these uh, high potential employees were asked about ways their organization could increase their commitment and engagement, it's funny, but monetary rewards were in fourth place, well behind the factors I just listed. And if we take a look at your responses, I see many of you have said group acknowledgement, acknowledgement, yep, financial is in there for sure, acknowledgement, acknowledgement for successes, um, some of you said a shout out at a staff meeting, and I think what's really interesting about this, which you've probably already picked up on too, is that a lot of your responses are not focused on pay. However, clearly that's one of the pain points that we hear about often from supervisors. So this webinar is meant to unpack some of this, hopefully, and help you think about pay as a tool in your toolbox, but it's not the only one. And I think we can look at the chat responses and we can see that, of course, pay is important, but it's not the only tool. So with that, let's jump to our content. The goal of this webinar is to take a broader view of ways to reward your employees and how pay strategy fits within that broader picture. So that's there up there in the blue box. Number two, another goal is to identify elements to consider when planning your pay strategy. And also third, hopefully to find some clarity about common misconceptions regarding rewards and compensation. And my panel here today, as I mentioned, will help us do that. As I mentioned before, we're gonna take a step back and look at the broader picture of the ways that you as a supervisor can think about rewards. Okay, ready? Great. Here at the U, there are four main components we think of when we think of rewards and compensation. University factors, or things that the U can offer to attract and retain talent. Local rewards, and these are things that your department, college, or unit can offer. These are things that you as a supervisor have some level of control over. We'll look at these in more detail in just a few minutes. Next, we have employee factors, mastery, and these are like things that the employee brings to the table. 
Finally, we have constraints, and these are things that limit your ability to pay. Let's take a look at how these work together and how they might influence your compensation strategy. So let's expand a bit by what we mean, what we mean by university factors. Here in the first three columns, we can see that U offers first a compelling mission of research, teaching, and outreach. I don't think anyone would disagree with that. Definitely value, so university value, which is in its programs that support the culture of healthy work-life balance, and there are many examples of this, and also, of course, strong benefits. These are the components that the U offers its employees in which you as a supervisor, you don't have much control over, but they benefit your employees and they add value to their experience as a U employee. Then there are other rewards where you as a supervisor might have more control and influence over. So let's take a look. Um, here are some of the things that are more local. Remember that for every local group, you might be able to give one or more of these. And there is also, of course, the person's preference. Our list of local rewards includes, and by the way, feel free to take notes on your action sheet. So first we have pay. This is a big one that people identify as a reward. And of course, we'll address this more in the upcoming slides. Next, we have career opportunities. Sometimes, I mean, sometimes this feels like a constraint, but it may be possible to break that constraint if you can think about it more broadly for your employee. Next, we have special assignments. Sometimes this is known as uh, what we call stretch assignments. And a common misconception is that this has to be uh, a second appointment or an additional appointment. This is not what we're suggesting here, but rather a broader look at the employee's interests and skills and a way to align these with an assignment or a possible project. Uh, we also, as a local reward, we have coaching, support, and training. This could include professional development that is relevant for their position and meaning, meaningful to the person. Next, we have greater responsibility and authority. So is there more independence you can provide to your employee as a reflection of the trust you have in this person, you know, given their demonstrated performance? This not only can be a significant retention factor for an employee who is interested in growth advancement, but signals to your team that you proactively think of their careers in a way that is visible in the workplace. The last local reward there is flexibility. This is something that is becoming increasingly more valuable for employees. And to the extent that you can apply this and still get the work done, it makes for a more productive work environment. There might be other rewards here, that are, also, that are not included, but it could be anything else that is perceived as valuable by the employee. Notice how pay is only one component here. It's really interesting. A common misconception is that pay needs to be perfect to attract and retain employees. When departments or supervisors have retention issues, you may think it's because of the money, right? That's probably true for some of the people leaving, but it also indicates that you may not be paying attention to other factors that are there that you need to deal with. If we look at our model on the slide, you can see pay is part of reward components and may be a factor in why people leave the U, honestly, but there are many more pieces to this puzzle. Another important factor to consider is your employee's individual preferences. So let's take a look at this slide. And again, you can refer to your action sheet to take notes here. So imagine you're considering compensation strategies for two different employees. You can see here employee one values flexibility in their position above other factors, and they also value benefits. Employee two, shown right now here on the screen, values career opportunities and greater responsibility or authority in their position, 
and has less focus on the benefits because of maybe because of other life factors. How would a supervisor know what motivates their employees? University of Minnesota research shows that on average, U of M employees are motivated by several things, including opportunities to benefit the greater good, they value science and lifelong learning, they prefer to be supportive team players, and they may shy away from overly competitive work environments and pushy people. So, the university's mission and values might be more important in motivating for them, as compared to some of the other career opportunities. This is one example of how to consider an employee's interests to leverage their values and motivators in your compensation strategy. So, get to know your employee. Spend the time to learn and recognize what is important to them and consider how to help them achieve that in their current position. Remember, there's no formula, there's no one formula for what motivates a person. So far, we've looked at different types of rewards and considered what ways might be the most meaningful for your employees within your means. Let's take a deeper dive into some of the concepts that might help you make a more informed decision around things to consider for your compensation strategy. So when talking about pay, we often hear concepts such as job family, classification, market, and salary range. How do these all work together? Well, for non-labor represented positions, the U has jobs arranged across 20 job families, which you see here on the slide. Each job family has up to 10 levels or classifications. So here on the right, you're seeing an example of the grants and contracts job family. Employees are classified to the job family that best matches the independence, complexity, and scope found in their job, as described in their position description. Each classification has a salary range, that reflects the outside market, not our internal pay. Let's take a look at what we're talking about when we say market. Great, the market is defined as the geographical area and types of organizations that we recruit from and to which we lose our employees. For most job families, the market is defined as all organizations across the Twin Cities Metro. For faculty, of course, this varies by campus, but it includes national and international higher education institutions of comparable size and scope. Formal salary surveys use major population areas of the country to provide this survey data. This typically would be a major metro area like the Twin Cities. This can present questions about appropriate range placement for certain positions on our system campuses in Greater Minnesota, but you know OHR's total compensation team is available to help when these kinds of questions arise. Each level within a job family has a salary range that reflects what all of the jobs at that level are paid in the external market. Each salary range has a minimum and midpoint and a maximum. And it's here at this point that I would also refer you to the action sheet to take notes on anything that's coming up. Or also, I think there's also a question there too that we'll answer here in just a minute. So the midpoint is the median rate or 50th percentile being paid for this job in the external market. In other words, this is what people make in this job on average in the, in the Twin Cities, not at the U. Minimum, this is the lowest rate of pay that the U is willing to pay for the job. This is also typically the lowest rate you would find in the external market. For maximum, this is the highest rate of pay the U is willing to pay for the job. Typically, this is also the most the external market will also bear for this job. Knowing where your employee is placed in the salary range will allow you to know how they're paid relative to the market, which 
coupled with the other local rewards and U value that we mentioned before, will help attract and retain talent. Total compensation within the Department of HR is undertaking a multi-year project to update our salary ranges with fresh and more exact market data that can be adjusted annually to reflect what's happening with salaries in the external market. These refinements have already been made to finance, audit, HR, and purchasing job families, and we're close to completing these refinements for campus operations as well. Market refinement is really important because the fact is we lose people to the external market. At this point, you're probably wondering, how do you know where to place your employees within this range? So now that we've looked at the types of rewards we can offer, let's take a look at mastery. It's a key factor when figuring out where to place an employee within the salary range, and this is the one we'll talk about more in the next few slides. So the first level is learning. An employee in this area is learning job duties and technical skills or hasn't yet mastered the job duties or doesn't possess the technical skills needed to complete the job. Some examples of this would include employees with a new task or responsibility or maybe even new hires. The second level is full mastery. This would be an employee who's mastered all the technical skills and abilities associated with their position and who's performing their job in a really competent manner now. The third level is what we call exceptional attainment. And you notice now the orange column is full. This is reserved for the very few individuals who meet all the criteria outlined for the full mastery employee. But in addition, they consistently go above and beyond the expected standards and consistently display desired behaviors. So the ideal range placement is as follows. And again, you can refer to the action sheet at this point if you're following along there. So let's take a look at this graph we have in front of us. The bottom third of the salary range is reserved for employees who are fairly new to their position or whose performance level is below full mastery. The majority of employees in an academic or administrative unit will typically be placed between learning and full mastery. And you can see that represented on our graph in front of you. The area just below or at the midpoint of the salary range is reserved for employees who have fully mastered all the technical skills and abilities associated with their position and are performing their job in a fully competent manner. And you see them there in the middle third. Typically, the next range placement is reserved for only the very few top performers in the area. Salaries should typically not exceed 10% beyond range midpoint. And again, you see that more or less represented on the graph in front of you. Because the ranges move every year, a recommended best practice is to start at three, or I'm sorry, is to start 3% above the min point so that these employees don't fall below the new minimum as they're adjusted. As a supervisor, do your best to make pay decisions based on the degree of mastery an employee has of their position. Uh, remember too, years of experience, education, or years of service with the U should not be a primary factor in distinguishing pay between employees. As a reminder though, this of course applies to non-labor represented employees. Typically when a person has more experience and more certifications or education, they often have stronger mastery of their position, but this is not always the case. Range placement is based on a longer term assessment of the degree to which the employee has mastered the position. This is different from performance and merit pay which we talk about in an annual context. 
let's take a look at a little bit of, at performance-based pay. Um, a reward and pay strategy is especially important when you make hiring, salary increase, and promotional decisions. There are four crucial times to consider performance-based pay options. So here we go. First is at the initial offer, right? You want to make sure you place people correctly in the range by considering their years of experience in education, the current rate of pay, internal equity, or how you would expect this employee to perform relative to others. It's really important to get this right. If you have a sense that you're hiring a high performer, not again, not necessarily because of all their years of experience, but because they are in that position, start them where they should be started. So the second circumstance or the second opportunity is the promotional increase. At the time a person is promoted, this is a chance to consider employees' performance in a previous role. It's also a chance to consider internal equity again, or again, how you would expect this employee to perform relative to others. Third, there's the annual merit increase. Distribute the increase based on performance over the past year and the difference between the employee's current versus ideal range placement. Finally, there's opportunity to consider periodic in-range or market adjustments. This is awarded based on, based on other factors. The difference between the employee's current range placement and the ideal range placement based on his or her long-term performance or job mastery. These four circumstances are when considering performance-based pay is crucial. It's also a good idea to check periodically to see whether any adjustments are needed. So two common signs that salary adjustment may be needed are first, when you have difficulty attracting and retaining talent. Uh, it could be offers are being rejected due to low salary, or you've noticed high turnover and higher salary is noted as a primary reason for departure. Another sign is if you're experiencing compression. This occurs when you have too many employees paid low in the salary range, including employees who are high performing with strong experience. This is usually noticed when you hire from the outside market and the salary of the new hire exceeds internal salaries for top performers. So this far we've looked at types of rewards that may be meaningful for your employee, as well as some key considerations when it comes to pay specifically. There are, however, of course, factors that impose constraints. So let's take a look at those. The first one that we've marked here is the ability to pay. The funding for any pay program or salary increase is always based on the department or unit's ability to pay. Almost all organizations struggle to fund all of their needed pay adjustments meaning that a lot of times market pay is higher than what we can pay. Of course, note that oftentimes we don't need to and we would be unable to move ahead with pay increases that match the market perfectly across every department, position, and employee. This leads us to the second factor. Areas of greatest need. So this is another factor to consider. Um, you may have to prioritize the areas in need of increase. How do you know which ones to prioritize? Um, well, give first priority to roles that have high turnover or are very difficult to fill, are mission critical in nature, and or are lower paid, comparable to market midpoint. For example, consider your priorities for the next several years. Uh, what skills would be critical to help you achieve those? What parts are less critical? Can the work be done with fewer people that have stronger skill sets? For example, your budget may be fixed, so you can't get more money, but if you prioritize one skill set over another, 
you could take funding away from lower priority to, move, to more fully fund the higher priority. So this ability to pay is not as static or fixed as you might think. You may have to make hard choices based on your priorities, but this is something, it's an important point that supervisors all over the U struggle with. It's important to note that some of the factors we discussed are actually constraints. There are always pressures that restrict your ability to pay people at what you might consider to be an ideal location in the salary range. When thinking about constraints, start by asking first, what does my budget look like? What's my ability to pay? And then, of course, what do I need in terms of total workforce to accomplish the work of the department? Should my workforce look different? And then, what are the jobs in greatest need of salary increases? Which will I address first? Keep in mind you can't solve all of these items immediately, but you really do, you do have to start looking at them and creating a longer-term strategy to prioritize and address them. So let's bring it all together and look at all the factors that affect your rewards and compensation strategy. A comprehensive reward and pay strategy are set at the local level and they're responsive to the needs of each employee while taking into account the restrictions that were mentioned previously. Knowing what's motivating to a particular top performer allows you as their supervisor to set a reward and pay strategy that's most impactful to them. As you see, there are many factors to consider here when trying to adjust pay. It's also important to remember that this image would be different depending on the employee goals, their motivations, their aspiration. So those green bars and those blue bars, they all move depending on your employee. Together, these are all factors that allow organizations to pay a bit less than the market without affecting their ability to recruit and retain talent, which ultimately is what we want. So questions for supervisors to consider. First is what's important for my employee? And this is represented by the university factors and local rewards on this graph. Second, what do they offer? What do they bring to the table? And this is represented by our employee mastery. Third, how critical is their position and what's in my budget? This is represented by the two constraint columns at the right side of the table. These questions are also on your action sheet. We encourage you, it doesn't have to be right now, but sometime today, tomorrow, or in the next couple of weeks, take some time to think through these questions and it will help you as you create your own compensation strategy. Great, so thank you for your attention so far. I know that's a lot of information and you probably have a lot of questions generated in your mind about maybe some of the details that I mentioned or some of the bigger picture things that you're dealing with in your department or unit. So this question, the question now is, so what do you do, right? So at this point, we're gonna turn it over to our experts, uh, Brandon, Mary, and Ken. They're going to answer your questions the best that they can that have come from some of the work being done here at the U. We hope this, we realize the discussion is, this is not the end. It's not like we, we find the answer to all of our problems today, but we do hopefully uh, leave today being more informed about what it is that we're wondering about. So we'll hope, hopefully we'll clear up some common misconceptions about compensation at the U. As you're listening to our experts, feel free to submit any questions you have in the Q&A so we can address whatever you're wondering about. So Mary, thank you for being here today. <laughs> and so as our compensation director here at the U, um, I think there are some questions I'm sure that you'll be able to help our audience uh, think about maybe more uh, in a more informed way. One of the questions that I wanted to start with today is, I really love this question because I, I think it's probably on the mind of a lot of our supervisors, which is, if you have an employee 
who walks into your office or meets you at the water cooler or wherever and says, why aren't I paid at midpoint? Like midpoint, that's the magic word, right? Mm -hmm. What is it that a supervisor can say to them to help them understand kind of, kind of the bigger picture of, of that question? Sure. Um, I think I would start <clears throat> by first saying um, that the midpoint is a single point in a very broad continuum. Yes, the midpoint, that will tell you what is being paid in the outside market, um, the median of the outside market. But again, there's a broad continuum, um, low to high, that's represented by our minimum all the way up to our maximum of how people are paid. So try not to focus on just that one point. Um, after establishing that, I think I would then start to talk about how a person gets to that midpoint level is by demonstrating that full mastery. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, you might even argue that once they demonstrate that full mastery, even being at, around, near, just beneath is still very competitive. So that's a, a conversation. I don't know if the person that's approaching you is at full mastery or not, but that would be a second factor. Mm -hmm. So we've got this broad continuum. Mm -hmm. We're not focusing on one item. And then you're going to make that journey as you reach full mastery. Um, I would also bring in the conversation that was part of this presentation. Let's talk about everything else. <laughs> so let's talk about um, work-life balance. Let's talk about our mission, benefits. Um, really getting them to maybe even talk to you at that point about what is important to them. That might be the opportunity to find out more, uh, especially if they're expressing some degree of dissatisfaction here in some form or fashion. Um, and then there is that last factor, which is um, we'll use this range to help us guide pay decisions. But anything we can do, it's always based on that ability to pay that budget factor. So again, there's a broad continuum, midpoints one item. You get there with full mastery or you get close to it even with full mastery. Let's talk about the broad, more broad platform of things that you, you get from working here. And um, you know maybe there's a point to do some planning a year or two out, but if you don't have money right then and there, that's probably important to talk about what else you might be able to do. Great, thanks, Mary. That's really I love the way that you that you uh, drew in that look at that as an opportunity, like that moment as an opportunity mm -hmm. to to ask, like, well, what is it that yeah you know? It's not always about pay. It I takes think a lot of courage of, to come forward. I mean, yeah. for an employee to come forward to their supervisor, that takes some courage, and mm -hmm. so you want to honor right. that process too. Yeah, great, thank you. So another question I thought that I would ask you while you're here with us, um, that I think would be on the mind of a lot of our supervisors is. When you want, when they want to deliver pay adjustments that they feel are needed, but there's no new money for increases, how can they kind of deliver on that? Kind of deliver these pay adjustments that, that they want to make, yet feeling like they can't because there's no new money available. Is there a, something to think about there? When I get asked that question, I always start, and I don't know why, I just feel it's important to say that this is probably the most common um, concern or constraint that you see at all organizations, all institutions. Um, so not just here at the U. Right. Yeah. I've worked other places and I don't see that we are any more constrained in that space than anybody else. Um, that doesn't make it easier, but I think yeah. it's very common and very consistent. So um, managers just, I think, feel that they never have enough money to give all the increases that they think would be deserved or, or um, important to give. So what we do is we talk about a few different things. We'll talk about um, 
you know, can you possibly maybe build a two to three year plan? Mm -hmm. So if you've got some needed adjustments, maybe your fiscal year is half over, you don't have funds this year, can you start trying to forecast two to three years out and just inch towards closing that gap? Um, it's a bit uncomfortable, but we do usually talk to people too about um, what does your workforce look like? Are you able to get the work done with fewer people? Mm -hmm. um, should we be reimagining um, different types of skill sets or fewer people? You could look at opportunities where maybe there's some already planned retirements coming up, um, departures, looking at your key business processes that are the most cumbersome or time consuming. Is there any way to streamline those where you could get the work done with fewer people, aka freeing up the resources mm -hmm. for those that are still there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I just think that um, those two factors are probably the largest. But then, too, trying to think through if there are jobs or <clears throat> roles that are more highly critical, that mm -hmm. they are the difference maker mm -hmm. in your department and mm -hmm. in success. Mm -hmm. You can't do everything all at once. Um, so maybe you start looking at those more very critical positions, especially if they're far behind market. Um, you know, just prioritizing, mm -hmm. um, taking smaller groups of people and or spreading it out over longer periods of time. And maybe it is done over a longer period of time with fewer people and different types of people in mm -hmm. that team. That works so, question. Just to summarize, there's no easy answer. That's what I'm yeah. hearing. Yeah, there's right. a lot of factors to consider. Yeah, there's probably more as well. Those are the three that just come to my mind. One other one that probably comes to my mind is, um, especially if you've got some of these salary ranges that have been refined, in, when you do the merit increase process, the ability maybe to differentiate that pay can help move people up in the range more. Um, so that might be another item. But yeah, the, the workforce, the time period, um, what's most critical kind of prioritizing Great. things. Great, thanks. So to our audience, I mean, I'm sure a lot of things that Mary has just explained might have sparked additional questions. So again, feel free to put those into the Q&A and we can work towards clarification of anything that she mentioned um, in a few minutes. Thank you, Mary, for your input, I appreciate it. Ken, I'd like to move to you. So as our total compensation senior director here at the U, I think there are also some things that you could help our audience with some clarification. Um, one of the questions that I'd like to direct your way is about midpoint because I think there is a kind of are some common misconceptions around mm -hmm. what that means sure. and how we think about it. So my question for you today is what are is pretty basic. What are the most important things people need to remember when thinking about midpoint, max, and min here at the U? So I'm kind of thinking what are some important sure. clarification or takeaways for that? Well, and I think um, in a decentralized uh, public environment like this, uh, and how we have handled midpoint and ranges in the past prior to the job family market refinement. It's very understandable that people have these questions. The first thing to clarify is that a midpoint, a minimum, and a maximum for a range is market-based. It is external by definition. And there, there really is no discussion on that point. It is a basic compensation principle. Um, how do we determine what these um, ranges are and what the midpoint is? Um, is a uh, you know it is a robust, almost scientific process. I would say that deep compensation expertise brings to the table, and Mary and her team have that expertise. And what they do periodically is uh, 
is uh, go to market. Uh, there are surveys out there that are substantive, traditional, long-term, year-over-year surveys that provide uh, fact-based information on what employers as a whole in a geographic area or across peer institutions may be doing for dis different disciplines. And that is uh, input into a uh, platform that we use here and then we do our own analysis to determine what our ranges are. But it is uh, a very, um, like I said, robust um, factual process that is followed to provide that information. I think a more important thing is how do you use this information? I mm -hmm. think people do look at it as this is the answer, and mm -hmm. it is not. It is a fact. It is a piece of information that informs us. Right. And I would tell managers that if they plan to have a conversation around this, it always um, is a fuller, richer conversation if you can tie it to your strategy for your department or the university. So if you can uh, work with your leadership team to have a story around how you look at your positions and your department and the work done therein, and even to the point where you're talking about what are our critical needs, um, what is some of our turnover, what are some of the challenges we're facing in our workforce planning, that goes hand in hand with what uh, the midpoint can tell you. Mm -hmm. um, because it's part of the story, it's not the whole story, mm -hmm. and it shouldn't even be our whole goal as employees and as an institution. Thanks, Ken. Again, I'm sure that raised some other questions from sure. our audience, and we'll, we'll approach those as they come up. Mm -hmm. um, great. That was a great summary. Um, another question that comes up commonly about midpoint again is, is there a, like a common recommendation on how far off from the midpoint mm -hmm. the U can be while still being competitive in you know, attracting and retaining talent? Well, I, I think that's a different answer depending on uh, the discipline. Mm -hmm. So um, college and units have different needs. Uh, different positions in different job families have certain demand in the market, different levels of turnover, and that can really determine what your pay strategy is for a position and whether you are going to try to approach midpoint or you can pay below midpoint because there just isn't that kind of demand for a position. Or if it's highly critical, maybe you even have to go above that sometimes mm -hmm. to really fill a need. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, the, the whole answer there is dependent on the situation, really, and the strategy you're putting in place. But again, having that accurate information allows you to have a strategy that may actually be implemented and work okay. in the future rather than having something that isn't based on the market um, and uh, where you're guessing a little more. Great. Thank you for that, Ken. Mm -hmm. um, and again, we'll come back to you with more questions as sure. they come up. Uh, one of my takeaways from both Mary and Ken so far has been that compensation strategy seems like everything. Like there's no way to just say, oh, midpoint, there's my answer. Or, you know, it's really about thinking hard about your yeah. department. Well, and like I think a lot of human resource principles and management of uh, a department, everything's interconnected. Mm -hmm. You know, it really mm -hmm. is a sort of an ecosystem of different principles that you have to be 
knowledgeable about and ask for support and if you're not so you can adequately inform your employees yeah great I think that's a really important takeaway from today so thank you Brandon thank you for being here today for joining us yeah um, so as our senior director of leadership and talent development I think there are some questions around comp um, that can, can we can direct your way um, and you can help our again help our audience with some clarification so I think um, some of the questions that I'd like to ask you about are of this mastery this concept of mastery so in your opinion, what are some variables that supervisors can use to assess whether the person, their employee, is approaching full mastery? Kind of what would that look like? Yeah, well, if we certify them, then they're, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's actually a complicated. Wait, there is an easy answer. Finally, I know, I wish, that, yeah, you know, okay. wish there was an easy answer. No, there, there are some, some factors to, to look at as a supervisor that can tell you. Um, you know, one key thing is it's really about performance over time. So you don't want to just look at the big project that the person did this year, and if that went really well, they're at mastery. You don't want to just look at recent performance over the last you know, mm -hmm. several months. Mm -hmm. It's really about performance over time, and does the person consistently meet expectations for both the results as well as the behaviors? And, and that's a piece that um, sometimes we don't attend to as much here at the university, well, actually a lot of organizations, is those behaviors. Um, so let's say you have a project and you really knocked it out of the park. Well, you know, did you accomplish it in a way that also met the expectations around the behaviors? Did you collaborate effectively? Did mm -hmm. you communicate effectively? Did you build partnerships mm -hmm. so that in the future, uh, your next project will be as successful? So um, some of it is that. You know, another thing as a supervisor, some things that will, you know, be an indication that an employee is at or reaching mastery is that the feedback and coaching that you're providing is less focused on getting the day-to-day -day work done and more focused mm -hmm. on longer-term development. Um, so when someone is still learning, as a supervisor, you're going to be spending a lot of time just helping them understand the day-to-day -day work, get it done. If they have some skill gaps that, that they need day-to-day, -day, you're going to be helping them with that. But once someone has reached mastery or beyond, they aren't going to need that kind of day-to-day -day help. So you'll find your coaching and feedback shifts to a longer-term view. Um, and you know the other piece, too, is that um, when someone reaches mastery, they're more kind of able to make decisions more independently and know when they shouldn't. Right? So they'll have a better sense for when do I need to bring my supervisor in on this and when can I just move forward with mm -hmm. something. Uh, when someone is earlier uh, in the process more you know, learning, they not, may, may not necessarily know, you know when should I talk to my supervisor, when does my supervisor need to make this decision, when can I make this decision. So someone who's at mastery is going to have a, a good sense for what that is. So as a supervisor, you're going to trust that, okay, they know when to bring me in and, and not. So um, those would be some of the things that, that you'll start to notice as someone reaches mastery. But again, if there's multiple pieces to it, yeah. and it's really about over time. So don't just focus in on recent performance or you know, they did one thing really well, which mm -hmm. could be great, it's over time. So it's not product, it sounds like it's not as product-based as it might sound. Right. It's not about that's, that, just how well did you do on that one project. That's right, exactly. And, and the other thing that's relevant here when we mm -hmm. talk about performance management is everybody tends to over-assess their people. Right, and so when we do like review scores, right? When you have, let's say, a five-point scale, and I have, like Mary, worked in lots of other organizations, and you always get the fours and fives, right? Everybody's a four or five. But aren't we? Uh, yeah, <laughs> we are. I know we are. We're all awesome. Everybody is awesome in their own way, right? Yeah. But the, one of the things to keep in mind that's relevant for this is that most supervisors are going to tend to overassess the, the level of mastery of their employees. Um, just it's human nature. You know them. You okay. like them generally. You know you want to to help them and, and, and you know give them the things that they want and, and that kind of thing. So there's kind of this 
element of it too to, to be thinking about what what is the objective data that I have okay. um, not just my own gut instinct or how much I like the person so okay so that was gonna be my next question yeah. is what advice would you give to a supervisor who might find themselves over assessing the mastery of an employee so it sounds like be objective find you know that objective data whatever it looks like to kind of back up that that assessment? Yeah, and there, there's also a concept in performance management of calibration, um, and that gets at, so you don't want to just have uh, a supervisor rating their employees in a vacuum, right? You want to uh -huh. kind of road test that by uh -huh. having other managers or human resource business partners or others sort of, you know, maybe challenging, you know, the ratings or, ask, you know, why did you rate the person this way? Can you give me the data, the examples to kind of back that up? Um, the, the best processes involve that kind of calibration, so it's not just on the supervisor. And the, one of the main reasons for that is, is because it counteracts this uh, tendency to kind of overassess. Mm -hmm. And so when it comes to you know, the question of is this person in the mastery category, you know, don't just rely on your own evaluation as a supervisor, but you know, what are others experiencing? And some, sometimes people will even get formal feedback uh, on that. But that's another piece of it too, is, is getting that other perspective. Great, thank you, that was really helpful. Um, in kind of along the same lines of mastery, we talked about this a little bit in the webinar, but I think it's important to clarify, um, what role does like seniority or credentials or education degree, what role do those play in determining mastery? Yeah, so the short answer to that is they don't they don't play a direct role in mastery. And I wonder if that surprises our audience. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, because we'd like to think so. And often, you know, if you have more experience, you are more likely to be in that mastery group. If you have certain academic credentials, maybe you're more likely to be there. But it is not a one-to-one -one, uh, relationship. And so you should never rely on those things to tell you whether someone is at mastery. And, you know, I think we've probably all seen people who, you know, give them six months of experience and they learn a ton. Other people in five years don't learn as much. Mm -hmm. And that has to do with a whole variety of different things. For example, motivation. If someone is really motivated to learn, um, they may learn a whole lot in, in six months or a year. Someone who's not really motivated is just checking the box in their job, they may not learn as much in five or six years. And when it comes to credentials, um, you know, academic degrees, um, it's the same kind of thing. Um, you can't necessarily assume that someone is able to translate the knowledge that they have from their academic degree into solving real world problems. And I, I can attest to that. Mm -hmm. When I finished my PhD program and started working at a Fortune 500, I went in there thinking, I've published research, I've taught <laughs> courses on this, I've worked with some of the world-renowned experts in this area. Well, it took me six months to be able to say anything that made any sense to anybody yeah. because <laughs> I had all this knowledge, but I, I couldn't use it at mm -hmm. first to, to solve any real problems at this organization. So it's about really the, the performance over time. And, and all of these things like years yeah. of experience and credentials can and ideally do contribute to that, but you gotta look at the performance. Thank you, again, that was very insightful. I wanna give the three of you a chance if, if there's anything that you wanted to add to either anything Brandon said or anything that anyone else said, this is a chance to do that before we jump into the audience Q&A. Okay, great, well yeah. let's jump into the audience Q&A because that really is what these webinars are about. So um, at this point, we'll go to your questions and see what you're wondering about. As I mentioned, you can enter your questions into the Q&A. Um, anything about compensation, compensation strategies or any other challenges you're facing, enter those into the Q&A and we'll address those now. And we've got some here to start with. 
Mary, do you have one you'd like to address? Yeah, I see a question that says, um, other than market data, I'm not sure I understand how the market um, range minimum, midpoint, and max are established. And so um, it really is just uh, market data. So we purchase salary surveys from probably, um, I would say 30, 35 published salary surveys from groups like Towers, Mercer, Culpepper, Coupa, uh, many other institutions and we purchase these surveys we go through those books and you'll look for data let's say on a accountant and we'll go through and we'll find what the um, Twin Cities Metro for most families the Twin Cities Metro what it is paying at the 50th percentile for that job um, and then we will bring that back in okay. and use that to set the minimum midpoint and max so it really is market data and can express enough that it is external to the U. We want to use that external picture to help guide internal pay decisions. But again, any internal pay decisions or internal um, pay rates, that's always uh, based on the ability to pay. So the ranges are the outside world and what we're offering, of course, to our people, that's our internal practice and ability to pay. So two different things. Okay. Does anyone want to add anything? No, I think that was Pretty well done. <laughs> thank you. I hired well. <laughs> Good job. <laughs> Great. Thanks, Mary. So um, if you ask that question, hopefully we've clarified it for you. Uh, there might be follow-up questions. So again, feel free to uh, enter those into the q and I, I can take one. Great. So there, there was a question um, about, is the goal that you would move everyone to full mastery and exceptional attainment? Um, so if you have a small team and everyone in long-term roles, is it reasonable you know, to kind of have everybody move up? And you know that is a, a really good question, and it's a challenge I think for a lot of uh, a lot of units at the university. But it really gets to your long-term talent development and compensation strategy and how they fit together. So I'll give you an example. I worked at uh, a Fortune 500 prior to coming to the university, and uh, the strategy there was really to bring in really bright young professionals, right? So these are people who had a lot of potential but were earlier in their career, so they didn't necessarily get paid a ton. They would get awesome experience, they would develop very quickly, but then the intentional strategy was, after a few years, we expect to lose a lot of them to other organizations. We will identify those who we think have longer term potential for this organization and we will you know, give them more money and, and opportunities. Um, and so, I, you know, this is really where your ability to pay and your longer term strategy need to come together because the reality is if you have a team, sure, they can absolutely reach mastery or exceptional uh, attainment at some point. That's going to become incredibly expensive and you probably can't afford that. Yeah. So um, that, you know, what's a, a different strategy then if that's not financially viable? And that's where you get, the, you know, sometimes they're called, you know, academy organizations, not, mm -hmm. not the academy like our academy, but like mm -hmm. companies where they hire young professionals, they get great experience, and then they expect them to move on because you can't afford to pay everybody once they've got the experience. That's just one strategy. But um, that's the kind of thing that you really need to be thinking through. Great. Thanks, Brandon. Um, yes, we had a question on uh, the Board of Regent discussions, which I think is a little different than um, the past ones, but it's a, it's a timely question, uh, given this is the time of year we do that report. Recently, the Board of Regents were discussing pay on campus, uh, highest paid positions, and there was a comment about compensation in higher education, and education in general should not be compared to the uh, public-private sector 
please address the role that the region expectations may have on overall HR compensation practices. And I think, um, you know, it, first of all, thank you for uh, listening to those discussions. Um, <laughs> and uh, we will be in front of them in May on the delayed February report, and we hope you all tune in. Um, but there are a couple things to keep in mind. Uh, there is a Board of Regents policy on compensation that if you read it, it's at a high level, but it does give you uh, an idea of how the university goes about uh, practicing compensation and strategically planning for compensation. And I would uh, suggest that after you read that, you can see that philosophy in the work that the Office of Human Resources does. Um, the other piece of it is um, there has been comments from some regions around comparing ourselves to the state of Minnesota. And we do not exclude the state of Minnesota, but in compensation and in business and at universities, you are more often served well by looking at the populations that you draw employees from and you lose employees too. And for staff positions, professional and administrative, that is often our local metro area. So we would be remiss if we did not account for that. We would not be good stewards of our compensation practices if we did not look at that community and that work. Having said that, we do keep in mind what the state of Minnesota is doing, other public employers, and depending on the work involved, uh, sometimes we look at those closely. Um, and, uh, you know, the regents are welcome to ask their questions. They have other ones besides the ones mentioned here, and it is an ongoing conversation because there will continue to be challenges in the future. I do want to jump in here, too, with uh some engagement data that speaks to this because th this question comes up a lot which yeah. who should we compare our workforce to and we do an employee engagement survey here at the university and we're able to compare the engagement level of our um, employees with the engagement level of employees in all sorts of other industries and we look as a workforce both faculty and staff at the university a lot like a big fortune 500 in that we have very highly engaged, very highly committed and dedicated, very highly motivated employees. When you look at the engagement data from uh, state government workforce or even federal government workforce, it is nowhere near the level of commitment and dedication and engagement that we see here at the university. And so when we think about the level of effort and commitment and motivation and you know those kinds of things that we see in our workforce from an engagement perspective, we are nothing like the state of Minnesota. Thank you, Brandon. That's very interesting. And, and I would just add, um, we, um, if you look at the ratio of pay for the top executive to uh, those uh, in the lower income levels in organizations, and I think a lot of times we're compared to maybe going corporate in our salaries, the university is in a very reasonable position. It's maybe 10 to 1, 12 to 1, which is still a large ratio, but compared to um, what you see in the landscape of uh, compensation studies for executive pay, uh, it is, I would say, fairly modest for someone leading a $4 billion institution. Great. Thank you, Ken, Brandon, Mary. 
So I'm going to try to boil together about six different questions that have come in <laughs> awesome. that are all kind of getting at the same thing. There's a little technical part and then kind of a boiling of the rest. So the technical questions were, um, can you repeat what you've said about something relating to 3% mm -hmm. as it related to the ranges? So very quickly, um, the slide had said just to try to hire, pe or hire people at least, never below 3% above the minimum. The reason for that is because each year those ranges move. Uh, they move by what we think is happening in the outside market, and generally that's going to be 2 to 3%. So if you bring somebody in or have a group of people that are clustered right near that bottom of that range and it moves, they'll drop beneath it. And then there's kind of a mandated salary increase, and no one likes to be reactive on those things. You'd rather be proactive. Um, somebody asked about bonuses and if they're factored into the numbers that are used to set salary for our ranges. They're not, and that's not practice um, in compensation across you know, the United States. Bonuses are not factored in. It's always base to base. So when you set your range minimum, midpoint, max, it's base salary. So that should be considered too. If you know that you've got a person, let's say in a role, a high level role that might be eligible for a bonus elsewhere, just put that into those bar charts. That's another variable, right? The pay and then there's like incentive. So how can you kick up maybe some other um, bar in that chart to try to offset that. Um, again, knowing what's motivating that person. But then the boiling, um, kind of the melting together of all these different questions are all related to the merit increase. Mm -hmm. So a lot around um, merit increases, limited merit increases, uh, merit increases that really kind of just come up equal, nose to nose with the cost of living adjustment. Um, so. What I like to say about merit increases, um, what we're really trying to do as an organization is pay for performance. And I think so often organizations and managers put so much and too much on the back of the merit pay program. Merit pay program, usually for companies I've worked at or other people I talk to who are compensation professionals, we network you know, very um, frequently. Most organizations do set their merit equal or somewhere very, very close to the cost of living adjustment. Organizations, I think, find it very hard when payroll is probably their biggest expense, also their biggest investment. I think it's very hard to um, figure out how to fund that any more richly than the cost of living. So you're looking at this fund and it's usually a number that anytime you give somebody more than it, because it's set to cost of living, you end up having to give someone like really essentially a pay decrease because their salary won't keep up with inflation. So um, what we try to say, you know, that, that concern or conversation that goes around and around and it gets tossed uh, around a lot in every organization we try to say, think about pay for performance as much more than that. Don't make merit do all the work for you. It's, um, you could argue it's one of the smaller vehicles. So if you remember the slide that talked about the time of hire, uh, I have heard managers at the U say, well, I found a, a superstar. Um, they, are, they are going to make the biggest difference in our department, but I had to bring them in low because I had two other people that were really low in the range. We're lucky they accepted the offer, but um, it was, it was nerve-wracking. So if you really do expect that that person is going to be the new team leader and the person that makes a difference, I would say go ahead and be more aggressive with that offer if you have the budget. 
Um, then the time of promotion, that's another time to look at pay for performance and telling the person that their raise is because of how well they performed. Mm -hmm. We do uh, that all the time. There's the merit and then there's these periodic in-range adjustments where when you go and look at a team and you're going to give adjustments, you give more to the people that are performing um, you know, at full mastery. But I think so oftentimes too, it's telling people that you are right at this moment paying for performance so they see it and they know that that's what's happening. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, Mary. don't make merit do so much of the work. Okay, that's a great message. Yeah, so thank you so much to everyone who submitted a question. Um, I think we've addressed several of them today, hopefully, and many of them were bundled in together. Um, but thank you to Brandon, Ken, and Mary for being with us here today. Um, as a reminder, today's webinar is recorded. Um, note, too, that all of the supervisory development webinars are available as podcasts, so you can listen whenever it's convenient for you, during your commute, walking on campus, or when you're at home. Each podcast is about 45 to 50 minutes long. You can find them at z.umn.edu slash sdcpodcasts. Thanks, everyone. We hope you found this information today useful and relevant, and we look forward to talking again with you soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Supervisory Development Course Podcast. If you have any questions regarding rewards and compensation, please visit humanresources.umn.edu or email ohr at umn.edu. The Supervisory Development Course Podcast is created by Leadership and Talent Development within the Office of Human Resources at the University of Minnesota. If you have questions regarding supervisory development, please email us at ltd at umn.edu.